Hi there, Journey. How y'all doing today? It's great to be with every single one of you, especially if you're a guest, maybe with us for the first time. We're delighted to be in the presence of God, to worship Him, glorify Him, exalt Him, because it really is all about Him, isn't it? Uh, This is not an idol, uh, though this is my team. This is a 49ers hat, and uh, we're a full-service church around Journey, and this was left at last weekend's 9 o'clock worship experience, and so I'm giving you a chance to claim your 49er hat. I have it here for you. If you'd like to claim it, if it's yours, uh, then come and get it. Uh, I I wouldn't want you to be out this fantastic. I mean, it's brand new. It's hardly ever been worn. And candidly, I cannot wear this hat. Right? I just can't. It's a flat-billed hat. I'm 38, almost 39 years old. Me wearing a flat-billed hat would be the equivalent of me trying to wear skinny jeans. And I promise you, I ain't ever going to do that. Right? Deal? We have a deal on that? Yeah, get an amen out of the skinny jeans comment. No skinny jeans here. Uh, If you don't claim this hat, that means it's going to revert to our son, Dylan. Uh, He's eight years old, and he keeps asking me, Dad, how long do we have to keep it until I can start wearing it? And I said, well, we'll we'll just let it go a while. And so I also need to tell you that if you claim your hat, it's, it's fine, but I will have to buy him one. Otherwise, he'll throw a fit. And that's how we parent at our house. We just buy things to shut fits down. Not really. Don't get it now. If it's yours, I'll give it to you afterwards because it'd be awkward for you to run up here and all that. We're talking about Jesus for president, not because we want or think you should vote for Jesus, but because we're actually taking up Jesus' invitation. What if the kingdom of God was in full effect in and through the lives of we who follow him? How would our world and how would our country, how would our culture, how would our conversations be different if every single day, every single one of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ were living out the great commission and the great commandment, bringing the kingdom of God through everything we do and everything we say. And today we're going to take up what it was that Jesus had to say on this matter of marriage. And I want to tell you at the outset, if you have not read John Ortberg's book, Who Is This Man? You Should... It's one of the best books I've read in the entire past 12 months. Ortberg is able to go into great detail in his chapter on marriage and sex, much more detail than I have time to in this time. And he really unpacks Jesus' revolution, the revolution that Jesus was starting around marriage and sex both. And I think you'd be really well served by reading that Who Is This Man by a guy named John Ortberg. I also want to tell you that everything we're going to hear Jesus say today about marriage really elevates what marriage is and everything it's meant by God to be. Understand that. We're going to elevate marriage from the author of marriage's perspective, see. And so no matter where you are on the marriage spectrum, God is long-suffering, God is forgiving, and so maybe you're a person who's been divorced, maybe you're a person who's been divorced and remarried, maybe you're a person who's never ever been married, maybe you're someone who's contemplating getting married, maybe you're in a marriage, or maybe you're in a marriage that is on the verge of going away because of a bunch of circumstances around that, no matter where we are, single, married, divorced, it doesn't matter. Jesus wants today to challenge our view of what marriage is meant to be all about. He wants to take it from like here, the bottom shelf, to the top shelf. He wants to take it up, up, up. 
And one of the ways he wants to help us do that is through this passage of scripture, Matthew 19, if you have a Bible. The entire passage is on your notes page. It's also on the screens. I'm going to read this for you. Matthew 19, 3 to 12. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him, that's Jesus, with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Jesus replies, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, Whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs. I'm going to press the pause button there. If you're a young person and you have no idea what a eunuch is... When we're all done in here, over lunch with your parents, ask them to tell you what a eunuch is. And parents, if you have no idea, Google is your friend. (laughs) Some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. It's a powerful word of Christ on the marriage deal. And you see what he's doing there. From a 40,000 foot perspective, he's restating and he's re-emphasizing and he's reminding people everywhere, all people everywhere, of everything that God thinks about this covenant of marriage. He's portraying for us the incredibly high view of marriage that God himself holds to. Marriage isn't just some economic or social institution which, by the way, was the view of a high majority of the ancient world. Just as an example, many, many families who lived in Egypt and really a wide swath of the Near East, that's exactly how they viewed marriage. It's an economic and or a social institution. Crazy things happen. Brothers actually married sisters. Why would they do that? So that they could keep property, so that they could keep all the family wealth inside of the family. It didn't have to leave and go anywhere. It was all right there, brothers, married, sisters. It's economic, it's social, we're going to keep our wealth together. Ancient Rome and the Roman Empire, the government actually mandated that their citizens get married and get to barren children just as quickly as they could so that they could biologically expand the Roman Empire. We need more citizens so that we can expand the Roman Empire. So in Rome, marrying and bearing children, it was just another and a very long list of civic duties. You pay your taxes, you get married, and you get to having kids, and now would be great. And Jesus like calls a big old time out to all that. He says, no way. That isn't in any way what my father God intended marriage to be. It's this revolution of marriage that Jesus is casting vision for. 
Now, to understand the context of Jesus' conversation, let's dig into exactly what's going on in Matthew 19. Let's set it up. Some Pharisees came. These are religious leaders of the day, Pharisees. They came and tried to trap him, Jesus, with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, just for the record, any time you ever see the phrase, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question, that ought to be your tip-off that the Pharisees are coming all loaded up with, it's an A word, an agenda. They've got a big old agenda. This isn't just an innocent question coming out of a friendly conversation they're having with Jesus over a couple of cups of tea, maybe three cups of tea. On this particular day, the agenda that's all loaded up in the Pharisees' question, it boiled up out of this debate that was raging between two major schools of religious thought around this passage, Deuteronomy 24.1. So what they're doing is they're quoting in Matthew 19 from Deuteronomy 24.1. Here it is. See if this sounds familiar. Suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes her a letter of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. What rises up inside of you when you read that passage or when you hear that passage? Does anything rise up inside of you? It ought to be like a big old yikes, right? If he finds anything wrong with her, if she doesn't please him, then he can write her, it's like, whoa, what in the world? And you go like, of course he found some things wrong with her, right? Just like she found plenty of things wrong with him. They're both people. They're both imperfect. Neither one of them is flawless. There's stuff about both of them that's really broken. It's just the way humanity is. There's things wrong, absolutely. I get to do about six weddings or so a year, And I love that process, and I tell the couples that I get to walk through premarital work with, look, after you get married, you'll be really, really lucky if things are 80% as good as they were when you're dating. I really try to cast this cool vision for every wonderful thing that God has. It'll be about 80% as good as it is when you're dating, and it's just how it goes, isn't it? When you're dating both the man and the woman, you're on your very, very best behavior, right? Those of you who are in a dating relationship right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not dishonest. It's just the way it goes. It's what you do. You put your very best foot forward in an effort to impress the person you're dating or courting or whatever you want to call it these days. And then what happens? Well, you get married. And then, well, you don't have to be so impressive anymore, do you? Why? Because you landed your mate. You both got what you wanted, which is each other. And now you're married and you've said, till death do us part. And then about five minutes after you speak those words to each other, the real you starts to show up. The impatient you, the one who leaves stuff in your pockets of your clothes that goes through the wash and makes a mess of the washing machine, wrecks other people's clothes. And so the the you who leaves dirty dishes in the sink, the you who leaves dirty socks on the bathroom floor, the you, see if you recognize this one, the you who runs the car's gas tank past below the E, under the E, the real you shows up. Your very best behavior goes away and you're really, really lucky if you have it 80% as good as you did before you got married. It's just the way it goes. And so you see in Jesus' day, there's this debate that's raging between these two schools of interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1, which 
is it? How can we get out of marriage? One of those schools took Deuteronomy 24.1 to mean that a man could divorce his wife only if she cheated on him. Only if she's been unfaithful. She cheats, you can divorce her. You can't, from that school's perspective, just divorce her because she's only at 80% of what she was when you were dating. Only if she cheats. Now, the other side of the coin, the other school took the view, watch this, that a man could divorce his wife literally for any cause, from her cheating all the way to, and I'm not making this up, she burned my toast. She burned my bread. And anywhere in between. That school says you can divorce, men, you can divorce your wife if she slips from 100% of what she was when you were dating to like 99.99%. You can divorce her just like without cause. You write her a letter and she's gone. Now both of those schools agreed on one thing, that the law does absolutely grant the man a right to divorce, though it's certainly regrettable. And so here come the Pharisees. They're all loaded up in this argument. They have this agenda. They're going to try to trap Jesus into settling this dispute between those schools once and for all. And they're just praying that Jesus will take the bait. But he won't take the bait. He doesn't take the bait. Because you see what they're asking him to do. They're asking him to wade in way down here on the bottom shelf in and amongst the fray. And instead Jesus says, no way, you guys are missing the whole point. You're missing what marriage is all about. And he says, take your thinking, would you please take your thinking from way down here to way up here. And he's trying to get us to take our thinking about marriage up to that level as well. How's he do it? How's he do it? How's he avoid the fray and elevate our thinking? He says, look. This marriage deal is a God-breathed, God-directed covenant that is uniting spirit and flesh both. That's like miraculous what's going on there. He says, let, let me show you. And he takes us to Matthew 19, 4 to 6, and here's what he says. Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. So they sort of set him up with this agenda, and he's... Really, Jesus is messing with the Pharisees here. He's sticking a stick in their eye. Haven't you read the scriptures? They're, they're religious geniuses, right? They're big old Bible scholars. And he's going like, you guys, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied. Just, and then he's like, just in case you haven't, let me tell you what they say. They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And then he goes on, since they're no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. He takes them, the Pharisees, and us, frankly, all the way back to creation, and he connects the marriage covenant deal with creation itself. It is astounding, and it's shrewd. Very shrewd of Jesus. We wouldn't expect anything less from him. And what makes it so shrewd was that the issue of the day really wasn't whether or not a person had the right to divorce. People try in our day to do that all the time. They try to make that the issue. Does a person have the right to divorce or not? But see, Jesus makes the real issue God's original design and intent for marriage. That's where he takes us. That's where he's raising the bar to. And he says, God's original design and intent for marriage is this. Husbands and wives, you go be one flesh. Husbands and wives, you go be one flesh. 
Jesus says. You go tie up so closely and so intimately that where there used to be two, now there's only one. It's not about whether or not you have the right to divorce, what's the cause for divorce. It's about you two being one. And he links it all the way back to creation. It's not about God's desire that no one divorces. That's down here. It's in the cellar. It's not about can I divorce, should I divorce, do I have the right to divorce, have I been wronged enough to divorce. Jesus doesn't engage there. He doesn't take the bait there. He sets the whole conversation way up here, elevating marriage, watch this, to the place of not even having the kind of marital disharmony that leads people to even consider divorcing. Don't even get there. Don't even get there. Oneness won't even permit your relationship to get to the place where you're even considering divorce. And by taking the marriage conversation all the way back to the beginning, to the creation narrative, Jesus makes his case like rock solid. See, because in Jesus' day, every other Jewish teacher back then, they looked all the way back to the creation narrative for what God's ideal purposes were. They always looked to creation to see what it was that God's vision was. What did God have in mind for how things unfolded in his world? And Jesus takes them right back there. And he goes, marriage is meant to look like this, which have been, would have been a nearly impossible argument for anyone to refute. Connecting this marriage covenant, this unification of spirit and flesh, all the way back to creation. And you know the book of Genesis, I'm sure. And you know that at the beginning of Genesis, the Bible records God's incredible creative work. And Genesis teaches that God made creation good by doing this one certain thing, by separating. God made creation good by separating. He separated the light from the darkness, that's right. He separated dry land from the, right? He separated heavens from the, Earth, that's exactly right. But then watch this. With man and with woman back then, just like now, he takes that which was separate and he, God, maker of heaven and earth, the one who breathed the breath of life into humanity, he takes that which was separate and he joins them together. Husband and wife. The unification of spirit and flesh. And he joins them and he links that with creation and then just to sort of punctuate the incredible supernatural miraculous nature of what he's doing when a man and woman marry Jesus says that which my father God has joined together let no one and he means no one split apart don't break that Jesus is saying that marriage is one man and one woman stepping into the act of divine creation, what God has joined together. It's what he did, it's what he's doing, it's what he's going to continue to do. It is this spiritual, God-directed reality, and the Pharisees don't like it. They're not satisfied. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. But it was not what God had originally intended. That's incredibly instructive. 
Jesus points out something we instinctively know to be true. He's saying Moses permits the divorce clause in the law because he knows human nature, he knows sin nature, and he knows that people's hearts get hard. He knows that. And he says, look, having a hard heart is a really, really difficult thing to rewind, to undo, to unravel, which means as you contemplate marriage, as you are married, you can't even let your heart start to harden up toward your spouse because once you do, it's most likely all downhill from there. The whole reason the divorce clause ends up in the law is because Moses knows, God knows, how inclined humanity is to bad stuff growing up in our hearts, taking root, and taking what is supposed to be a heart of flesh and turning it into a heart of stone. But that isn't what God had in mind for this miraculous covenant of marriage. It's not even close. That's down here. God wants us up here. God had in mind that every single one of us would be soft in our marriages. That we would be soft with one another, with our spouse, with the one we're dating, with the one we're pursuing, with the idea of marrying, that we would be soft. Now I know being soft doesn't sound very manly, right? It just doesn't. But I'm telling you, it's what God intends for you and for your spouse, for you and for your girlfriend, for you and for your boyfriend, that you would both, man and woman, that you would cultivate soft hearts for each other, soft hearts toward each other, which means that you have to have this living, breathing relationship with God because really it's him that keeps your heart soft about everything, You can't do it in a vacuum. You can't just decide, I'm gonna keep my heart soft. I'm gonna keep my heart soft. I'm gonna keep my, you and God have to work on that together. It's you and God. And soft hearts foreign toward each other, maybe for you looks like you guys giving each other the benefit of the doubt. How hard is that sometimes? Give each other in your marriage relationship the benefit of the doubt. What would happen, for example, in your heart if maybe for the first time in a long time you took the posture that your spouse actually had your best interest in heart and mind? What if you believed that every single day? I've been around long enough to know that most people end up in some kind of marital train wreck because somewhere along the way, someone, maybe both someones, started thinking that every blooming thing that their spouse said and did was actually intended to harm them, right? And if that's all you're thinking about your spouse, well then what's gonna happen to your heart? It's gonna become hard as a rock in about 10 seconds. Be soft. Be soft-hearted. One way you can do that is by giving your spouse the benefit of the doubt. Believe, believe, maybe for the first time in a long time that your spouse is not out to get you, hurt you, trip you up, but they're actually trying, maybe they're very hardest, they're trying to love you, help you, serve you. Be soft. It's what God intends for your marriage, my marriage. Try this even. This might help you. And don't do this now because it'd be kind of embarrassing. But in a private setting, look deep into your spouse's eyes and say aloud, you are not my enemy. Try it. Not now. You are not my enemy. It's a powerful powerful deal. The very first time I ever had anyone tell me to do that, Dana and I had been married for all of about 30 days. We were fresh off our honeymoon, as a matter of fact. Some friends of ours sent us to a marriage conference as a 
wedding gift. And so we're sitting in the seats in this big convention center and we're like levitating. We're so excited. We're just giddy. Our marriage, of course, was perfect 30 days in. We hadn't had a single disagreement. If we had, we were so polite about it that we didn't recognize it even as a disagreement. We were really, really soft with each other all the time. And so we show up at this marriage conference. We've got this guy standing on the stage telling us to look deep into our spouse's eyes and say aloud, you are not my enemy. And he had us actually do it several times in this room full of hundreds and hundreds of people, lots and lots of couples turning to each other all at the same time saying that you are not my enemy. Dan and I tried it, but all we could do was laugh. It just sounded so silly. We're like, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Of, of course you're not my enemy. You know, so we're laughing. And then while Dan and I were looking each other in the eyes, she said, well, as long, though, Brian, as I'm staring deep into your eyes, you are hot. Would you just like to skip out on the session and go back to the room? That's exactly what Dana said to me. <laughs> True story. The point of the story is we're looking each other in the eyes going like, you're never going to be my enemy. Of, of course not. But then you know what happened, right? Like two weeks later, real life settles in on us. We're both about 80% of the person we projected in the run-up to our wedding. Well, I was probably like 80%. Dana was probably like 99.9% or so. But I remember hearkening back to that conference, practicing that exercise and going like, oh yeah, I see why that's so important. She's not my enemy. You're not my enemy. And Dana, well, she just walked around all day long looking me in the eyes. You are not my enemy. You are not my enemy. You are not my enemy. Not really. Be soft. Be really, really, really soft with and toward each other. The way you think about your spouse, the way you talk to your spouse, the tone you use with your spouse, the way you treat your spouse, be soft. That's what God intended for the marriage covenant, that we would be soft with each other. And this is just a freebie. It comes to mind as we're talking about being soft with each other. Dallas Willard said one time, one of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt anyone with it. One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt anyone with it. And isn't it just true that very often in marriage, we trumpet out how right we are, how wrong the other person is, and we're like swinging the rightness around like a big club, right? But it doesn't help our spouse's heart stay soft, quite the opposite, really. And then you think about this, you sort of take that and then you go here, what's absolutely utterly amazing about Jesus is that he is and was always right and he never hurt anyone with it. Think about that and then go, that's our model. He's our hero. And no, he wasn't ever married, but he's got this human relationship thing really well figured out, doesn't he? You see, Jesus right, correct, proper view on life, on marriage, on the life that's to come after this life, what he's doing is he's calling us, every one of us, whether we're married or not, to the very best that he has to offer. It's his plan. It's his way. It's his intent. Back to creation. It's his design, even. Marriage, according to to this high view of God himself, it isn't about avoiding adultery. It's not about avoiding divorce. It's not about even avoiding hard-heartedness. 
Instead, it's about us pursuing marital oneness at every level possible, physically, intellectually, spiritually. Oneness that causes the individuality of both the man and woman to come alive, to, to flourish. Walter Wangren said this, marriage begins with a promise. Marriage begins with a promise, and it's a lifetime promise, isn't it? And it's a promise that transcends all attraction, it transcends all utility, and sets your word that you give your spouse into the context of a God-breathed, God-designed, God-ordained covenant, which, when you think about it, is really quite an echo of the very thing that God himself does when he himself makes a vow of unconditional and unending love to you and to me, to all of humanity. And he says, this is what I have for you. This is the very best that I have for you. It's what I designed you for. It's what I made you for. It's what I intended for you from the very beginning of time. Would you take your stuff and set it aside and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Invite you to go to prayer if you would please. I just invite you in this quiet stillness, you and the Lord, that you would press in hard around what it looks like practically for your view of marriage to be elevated. And then what it looks like for your view of marriage, a high view of marriage, to be applied to your every single day life hour by hour, minute by minute, interaction by interaction. What's it look like for you to be soft in your dating relationship? Maybe you haven't been. What's it look like for you to be soft in your marriage? Because maybe for a long, long stretch, you haven't been. hearts are hardening up and you just need to press the pause button and go time out we got to have a conversation here and there needs to be forgiveness seeking reconciliation on both sides maybe you need to have a conversation in your dating relationship or with your spouse that starts like this, honey, you know, my heart's real hard toward you and here's why. And you just need to be as candid as you've ever been. Dump it all out. And be gentle, be soft, be careful. But be gut level honest as well. And if you, the party sitting on the other side of the table, receive it receive it 
and then commit to rolling up your sleeves, you and Jesus, and going, okay, we're going to work on that. Because I want to be one with you. That's the goal, oneness. It isn't just about avoiding hard hearts. It's not just about some facade of marital harmony, making everybody think that you have a wonderful marriage. It's about oneness. That's supernatural. That's miraculous. That defies human explanation. Maybe you need to have a conversation today with your spouse that starts something like this. So what do we need to do so that we can be more one that God intends? And carve space and time out to press into that. Don't let life creep in and steal away that conversation. Have it. It matters. God says it matters. Be one. And maybe you're in a dating relationship and you hear all this and you hear God's vision all the way back to creation of this oneness deal and and you know, you, you know in your gut, you know in your heart that this dating relationship, it won't ever get there. No matter how much you want it to, you just know it's not ever gonna get there. I know this is hard, but you probably just need to stop the train. You probably just need to get off the train and go, you know, let's be honest here. We're not headed toward God's best. It's hard, but God will give you the strength. He'll give you the courage. He'll give you the boldness to have that kind of a conversation. And then it'd be real remiss if I didn't just express again that God's covenant offer of love and salvation and redemption, all of that which permits you to live in harmony with God, it's a free gift and it stands wide open available to every person today. And so maybe you're here today and you know that your life, everything about your life is far from being in harmony with God's life, with God's will. What God invites you to, every person to today, is a step of saving belief in God. And if that's the desire of your heart today, to step into saving belief in God, you can do that by praying along with me a prayer that goes like this. Jesus, I get it. I'm a sinner. I've been trying real hard to be good enough to save myself, but I can't do it. For a long time, Jesus, I've been ignoring your knock, your pursuit of my heart, but I'm all done with that. I'm turning all the way to you today, Jesus. I gratefully, by faith, receive your gift of salvation. I trust you as Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for rising from the dead for me. Thank you for taking my sin. Thank you for giving me a new heart. Thank you for replacing the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, Jesus. You're the one who does that. Come into my heart. Be my Savior, Jesus. And if you're a person here today who's stepping into saving faith in Christ, that's the biggest deal of your whole life. And it's such a big deal that around here we invite you to tell us when you make that decision. And so I'm going to ask you to be bold and do that with me right here, right now. 
If you prayed with me just then to step into saving faith in Jesus Christ, would you just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me right now? You can do that right now. Just say, yep, I'm stepping into faith in Jesus Christ. Right here, right now, today, you can do that right now. Just make sure I catch your eye if you would. I don't want to miss you. Jesus, we love you, and we are so incredibly grateful for the price that you paid for us that we could know you. is isn't just about heaven. It's about living in relationship with you right here, right now, a transformative relationship that changes how we approach everything in this life. And Jesus, I pray that you would have profound and significant effect on our marriages, on our dating relationships, on our courting And Jesus, that we would live out the vision that you cast for us that goes all the way back to creation of a oneness that defies explanation. And that we would pursue you with all our hearts. That we would trust you every single day to shape us more and more and more into the image and likeness of you, Jesus. It's you we, we want. More than anything, Jesus, it's you.